as we recover from senior week and sit down with our family and friends from home, this question will come up over dinner and in many situations in the future. So, what did you learn at Harvard? What will you tell them? What has our Harvard education really been? Our Harvard education. It could have been discovering our passions, realizing disciplines that we never heard of before coming to college, extracurriculars that we somehow ended up spending hours on without realization. Our Harvard education. Perhaps it was the realization that when a friend strikes up a meaningful late night conversation, that paper or problem set could wait. Or learning the importance of thinking of a friend and stopping by their room just to check in and see how they are doing. Our Harvard education. Oftentimes, it may have been failing and dusting ourselves off and getting back up and facing everything again. Our Harvard education. Maybe it was realizing that we were not content simply being a product of Harvard, that we wanted Harvard to be a product of us, that we wanted to do something so that we could look back at our college and say, this is an institution that better reflects me and the values I hold dear because of my efforts. Our Harvard education. It could be about becoming more comfortable with being uncomfortable, with inevitable uncertainty, steadfast turmoil, and constant flux. Our Harvard education could have been about taking risks, embracing our fear of the unknown, and moving forward despite of it, and taking deep breaths and making decisions to change our lives when we weren't living the realities that we wanted. So, what did our time at Harvard teach us? How will it help us as we go forth into the real world? We may not have all the answers now, and that's okay. We don't and can't know now everything that we have learned and all the ways in which we have changed here at Harvard. That ceremony we have tomorrow, commencement, means beginning. We are just getting started. And as we go forth from Dexter Gate, having hopefully grown in wisdom and soon departing to better serve thy country and thy kind, I hope that we stay true to ourselves. It has taken us so much courage and grit to grow up and become who we are during the challenging and incredible experience that Harvard has been. With each decision that we make with our hearts, our compass is tweaked, a little here, a little there, to ultimately land each of us in the spot that is right for us. Thank you so much, class of 2014, and congratulations. Thanks, Jen. My name is Arjun Modi, a proud resident of Kirkland House, and I'm your class treasurer. I'm Rain Jade Chung, and I represent Kirkland House on the Senior Class Committee. It is our great pleasure to introduce to you today a man who holds a special place in all of our hearts, the one and only Dean Feaster. Yeah. 
Dean Feaster is the Asa Gray Professor of Systematic Botany, and his love of plants, trees, flowers, and fungi is known all too well by most of us. Dean Feaster joined Harvard 40 years ago in 1974. Since then, he has been intimately involved in undergraduate life. In 1982, he assumed a role special to myself and Range Aid when he became co-master of Kirkland House, serving for 18 years with his wife, Kathleen. Most recently, he was dean of Harvard Summer School before leaving that post to serve as interim dean of the college this past year. And what a year it has been. In a message to the class declaring that we already beat Yale the weekend before the game, he reminded us that Harvard is home to the world's largest university-owned herbarium with more than 5 million specimens to Yale's 350,000. <laughs> because of this, he said that Yale could not even compete with us. A premonition that was confirmed when we won the game 34 to 7. From sharing his reading list with the class, which often consists of mystery novels such as How the Light Gets In, a Chief Inspector Gamache novel, to helping us identify fungi around Harvard Yard, to reminding us to take care of ourselves and others amidst difficult times on campus and off, Dean Feaster has undeniably been a source of comfort, support, and many a laugh. He has brought us cupcakes in Lamont, traveled with us to class on the shuttle, and helped us welcome freshmen to their new homes on housing day. Dean Feaster, you will be missed by the undergraduate community, and we wish you all the best in your next adventure. Please join us in a warm round of applause for Dean Feaster. Thank you, this is wonderful. Uh, greetings and congratulations to the class of 2014. My congratulations are not only to the remarkable women and men who will march tomorrow toward their future, but also parents and friends who have made the journey possible. Thank you too. At last, I have you all here in my extended classroom. Please pay very close attention because tomorrow we pass out the exams. Allow me to review the syllabus. Look over toward University Hall here. A single pine stands there. Its predecessor, also a white pine, was blown down in one of the hurricanes that occurred in the 1980s. Originally, a row of pines marked a special spot. The site, in times before indoor plumbing, of the college outhouse. <laughs> Such an essential place. So full of history. <laughs> that marks the spot where we celebrate our last days together. Time, time flows on, things change. Just as Harvard has changed over time, so have you. During this interim year, I have had the singular pleasure and honor of greeting a freshman class whose graduation I will not oversee, 
and celebrating today and all year a senior class that, did not, uh, that I did not welcome as freshmen. We have all been on a journey. Yours has been one of concentrations and requirements, performances, competitions, high points, low points, while mine has been characterized by what? Perhaps I could summarize it a bit as learning about the complicated ecosystem of academic administration, and more importantly, of following you all in your final undergraduate year. In the Fellowship of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, not all those who wander are lost. Facing the challenges in our journey, I suspect that all of us have felt at times lost. But now in retrospect, I think we may uh, just be wondering quite a bit. When I talked to freshmen at Convocation in September, I reflected on my early academic journey, how I grew up in Ohio, that my sister and I were the first in our family to attend college, that I went to Miami University, the real Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Looking back, I must confess that I was clueless. Perhaps when uh, you review your first year now, you'll get the same sense. I was a small town kid on a pretty small campus in inadequately prepared to cope. Despite my rough start, I discovered an academic field and a set of mentors who saved me. By telling the freshmen about my initial college difficulties, I hoped to encourage them to reach out, extend themselves, to find what would compel and inspire them. Today, my point in telling you about my undergraduate trials is that you and I share an important aspect of our journey. We succeeded. Henry Ward Beecher wrote, uh, we should not judge people by their peak of excellence, but by the distance they have traveled from the point where they started. Personally, I find these words reassuring. You may also find them worth remembering. So here we are. We have traveled uh, to the very, very eve of commencement. It may interest you in the early days of Harvard. Jen stole some of this from me. Uh, commencement came not at this point and time of the year, but in the fall after a summer break. It came when the year was commencing, a beginning. In the spring, there was another type of celebration, class day. Class day was the last day of term. In the 1830s, seniors met in the morning in one of the common rooms in University Hall. There they had a religious service conducted by one of their own before marching in procession to Wadsworth House, where the president lived. The seniors then escorted the president to Holden Chapel, where there were prayers, orations, poems, a class ode, most in Latin. Later, a new set of customs that included dancing around the Liberty Tree, an elm uh, near Holden Chapel. On, the, the, on those occasions, as one writer noted, the seniors provided punch in a barrel, 
and brandy and water in pails, which were placed at the foot of the tree, and were steadily replenished all afternoon, mugs being provided for all comers. There was singing and dancing, speaking intermingled with unlimited drinking. Not the slightest attempt was made to control or repress this. It was simply a brutal, howling orgy. <laughs> there was little attempt at fun, no kind of system of traditional order, nothing but steady drinking and the resulting drunkenness. Now, a few of you think, perhaps, that you invented everything anew. <laughs> the tree is long gone, killed by uh, elm disease early in the last century, but class day spirit lives on. Now the celebration of commencement and class day have merged and changed. Today and tomorrow, you have orations, singing, and pomp, uh, maybe not so many barrels of booze around, though I'm always surprised and grateful to note the grounds crew has managed to collect all the discarded bottles and cans and cups before the arrival of your guests on commencement morning. <laughs> Still, our language of commencement beginning carries on. For you, this is another sort of beginning. So let me tell you what to expect tomorrow regarding the venerable exercises here in Tercentenary Theater and your role in them. During the commencement exercises, the president will confer degrees upon the university's graduates. First, PhD and master's degrees are called. Then pro the professional schools will be acknowledged in the reverse order of their founding. Each of the schools has its own little cheers, and its members will wave about their special little props. Then, last, the college is called. That gives us a chance to outdo them all. When you are recognized, it's your moment to inform the graduate and professional school students about which school is the true jewel in Harvard's crown. I hope you will seize the day and out-cheer them all. Make sure that those cheers can be heard all the way to Somerville. And then, when you quiet down, I will begin the salutation. Madam President and fellows of Harvard College, this refers to Drew Faust and the fellows of the Harvard Corporation. They form the legal entity that is Harvard University. Next, I will greet Mr. President and members of the Board of Overseers. This refers to the second governing body of our university and its presidents. After these salutations, I will attest that you have fulfilled the faculty's requirements for the first degree in arts and sciences. At that point, there is no going back. We've given away your room. Much as we love you, we have opened the doors to a new class. Like Adam and Eve, you're cast out. <laughs> you have gone to the other side. 
Finally, I will pronounce that each candidate stands ready to advance knowledge, to promote understanding, and to serve society. To advance knowledge, to promote understanding, to serve society. Such a noble affirmation. But the fact is, we leave a lot to your imagination and ingenuity uh, about what those noble words mean. Fortunately, during your time at Harvard, you have all been engaged in these goals, whether you liked it or not. What we are certifying, and my deepest hope is that, as you go out from Harvard, you will indeed advance, promote, and serve. It is what we expect of you, whether in education, in business, in professions, in life. Are these obligations? Yes, they are responsibilities, but this is what we expect of ourselves and for our fellow inhabitants of this small planet. One of my favorite spots in Harvard Yard is behind Holden Chapel toward uh, Massachusetts Avenue. The chapel was built to face the street, and this outward-facing part is the fancy side of the building. It is near this spot that the class tree stood. You will find a sundial there, many of you may have already found that. Inscribed around the supports, uh, the support are the words, on this moment hangs eternity. Keep this in mind tomorrow when you celebrate. On this moment hangs eternity. You need to make the best of the moment. It leads us forward. What we do and decide now is with us to eternity. Meanwhile, we are here now, closing in on this, these last moments, under this magnificent green but wet canopy. I have enjoyed and valued our time together immeasurably. There were many performances by various groups, the Harvard Pops, Din and Tonics, I2M Harvard, visits to houses, and the senior scavenger hunt. When it looked like you could use a cupcake, I was glad to bring it to you. It pleased me to see so many students in my office hours to discuss concerns or just to say hello. Riding the shuttle bus on a winter's morning allowed me to chat with some of you and gave me a sense of what you were doing in order to juggle classes, activities, athletics. And of course, there were the emails. For many of you, my periodic messages were informative. If they made you smile and brought you a bit closer to, the marvel to this marvelous community, well, that was perhaps most important. These last few days, of, uh, the, the last few days are your days. Amid the hustle and bustle, please spend a moment to reflect on what you have done. The races run, lost and won. The perspectives examined, the minds changed, yours and perhaps your parents. Papers written, problems solved. 
Bear in mind that with luck and health, those friends you hold dear today will come to join you sharing the 5th, 10th, 25th reunions. Much has happened in these four years. Much has changed. There is a saying, no one ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river and it's not the same person. Though you cannot step back into the same Harvard we have shared, this Harvard, you and I, in the same river, together. I'm proud of you. I will close with the first lines of Tolkien's po poem. It's a riddle, really. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. May you, the graduates, find the gold that does not glitter. Friends, family, the love of your life, perhaps children, and your own kind of success. And may you wander, but always come home. Best of luck to you all. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Dean Feaster, and good afternoon, class of 2014. My name is Michelle Domino, and I am your class secretary. My name is Michelle Lowe. I am one half of the senior class tech and media team. And I'm Karen Shao, the other half of your tech and media team. It's hard to believe that four years have passed since we sat in this very place at our freshman convocation, strangers to one another and to the campus around us. After hundreds of hours spent in dining halls and classrooms, and thousands of steps through the gates of the yard, these places and faces have become, at the least, familiar to us, and often they've come to mean much more. Tomorrow, when we receive our diplomas and officially become alumni of Harvard College, we will do so in houses that have become our homes, and with people who have truly become our family here. It has been our pleasure as your class committee to see our 2014 community grow and strengthen during a very special senior year. And it has been my particular pleasure to flood your inboxes with emails and event updates along the way. In the years to come, we look forward to making this community even more connected and to continuing to see old classmates become new friends. As you look ahead, know that the Harvard Alumni Network will be there for you and that your classmates will have your back and be at your side, just as they are today and have been since we came to Harvard as the class of 2014, four years ago. We know that for all of you here, adventure is out there. Being spread out across the world doesn't mean that our class will not be able to stay connected with one another. We are overjoyed to see so many of you pinned on Map 14 from those of you staying in Boston to those of you moving halfway across the world. Remember that wherever you are, you can always revisit the Class of 2014 Facebook page. Whenever you're feeling nostalgic, 
for senior bar photos. <laughs> you can always reach out to your city captains, who will be dedicated to keeping you in touch with each other as well as with other Harvard alumni. Finding a new friend in an old city can be as simple as browsing our city Facebook groups or opening up Map 14. Even as we go our separate ways, we will continue to learn and grow together as a class. Today marks the end of a four-year journey, but the beginning of a lifelong one. By Friday at 5 p.m., we will lose swipe access to all Harvard buildings. <laughs> and with that, we lose our beloved daily dining service, the $65 of board plus every semester, and the ability to walk out the door and be surrounded by hundreds of loving tutors, friends, and classmates. But we will never lose the memories of all-nighters spent in the dining halls, the delicious taste of Cape Cod chips from Flyby, and the experiences we have shared these past four years. Don't forget that those friends and memories are just a Facebook post, a text, or an email away. We hope to see you cheering in the stands at Harvard Yale next year and returning for our five-year reunion, and many more after that. Don't be a stranger. Keep in touch. Michelle, Karen, and Michelle. <laughs> we are looking forward to staying connected in the coming years. I am Caitlin Fay, Courier House Representative. I am Sarah June, Lowell House Representative. <laughs> During these past four years, we have taken a part in a number of Harvard traditions. We played Yale in football and won each November. We celebrated our houses with shouts and cheers on Housing Day and every day since. Some of us even jumped from Weeks Bridge into the questionable waters of the Charles River. Some of these traditions were staid and respectable, such as convocation, while others were decidedly less proper, such as primal scream. Running a naked lap around Harvard Yard on the night before exam period may not seem like a typical Harvard tradition, but we participated undeterred. Through traditions, we have been able to cultivate and celebrate past, present, and future shared experiences. Today, we are here to introduce one of the more respectable Harvard traditions, the tradition of class color. The class color tradition began when the senior class of 1882 wore green and white rowing uniforms to distinguish itself from the other class boats on the Charles River. The three original colors, green, orange, and blue, represented Harvard's fiercest athletic and academic rivals, Dartmouth, Princeton, and Yale. Wearing the colors of our rivals was a way to express victory over them, to triumph. In 1904, students began to wear pins with their class colors on them. As the tradition developed, wearing the colors on t-shirts and ties created a sense of unity and cohesiveness among the class. The class color tradition lapsed in the mid-20th century, but the senior class revived it in 2012. Today, we continue the tradition as the class of 2014 receives the color green. Green was originally meant to represent Dartmouth, 
one of our foremost athletic rivals. However, in the past year, Harvard swept Dartmouth in men and women's soccer, basketball, squash, swimming, and even ice hockey. Since it's not much of a rivalry anymore, green signifies something different for the Harvard class of 2014. It represents growth and renewal. Since we arrived on campus four years ago, we have changed and matured. Some of us would barely recognize our freshman year selves, and all of us have broadened our intellectual horizons. Now we are ready to move forth from Harvard, wizened and enlightened, or so we think. Yet our class color green will be passed on to the rising sophomores, class of 2017. They will adopt it as their own, and we, during this time of rebirth, will move forward to new things. Class of 2014, we will leave Harvard, but will forever be linked through the color green to the classes that follow. Thank you. Good afternoon, 2014. My name is Roland Yang, and I am one of your class marshals. I have the honor and the pleasure of introducing our incoming president of the Harvard Alumni Association, Cynthia Torres, Harvard College, class of 1980, and Harvard Business School, class of 1984. Hailing from Santa Monica, California, Torres was a resident of Lowell House and a government concentrator in her undergraduate years. She also served as a business tutor in Winthrop House during her time at the business school. Torres has been active in alumni affairs ever since her graduation. And her involvement reads like a guide on how to stay connected with Harvard. From chairing two committees at the Harvard Alumni Association, to serving as first vice president of the executive committee, Torres has seen many aspects of alumni life, and she brings a wealth of experiences to the Harvard community. Our speaker today has a special bond with the year 2014 and with our class. First, 2014 marks Torres's 30th reunion at the business school. Second, Torres was with us from the very beginning of our Harvard careers, serving as a marshal at our freshman convocation. Third, and most important, she is the proud parent of Spencer Gisser, who as a fellow senior is graduating with us from Forzheimer House this year. We are delighted to have Cynthia Torres with us on this incredibly special occasion as she welcomes us to our new Harvard community as alumni. Please join me in welcoming Cynthia Torres, incoming president of the Harvard Alumni Association. Thank you, Roland, for that kind and generous introduction. Greetings, class of 2014. Today, you are one of 1,650 graduating undergraduates. Tomorrow, you'll be welcomed by President Faust into the fellowship of educated men and women and join a larger global community of 320,000 proud Harvard alumni. 
As the incoming president of the Harvard Alumni Association, I want to talk about what the HAA can do for you. As Roland mentioned, I do feel a special bond with your class. Four years ago, I served as the lead marshal for the Maurer Dormitory Group when you marched into this same theater at your freshman convocation. I have returned to campus often since then. One of your classmates is my own son, Spencer Gisser, who today is a graduating senior in Forsheimer House. I am so proud of him. <laughs> and in that way, I know how all your parents feel. Students, please make a point today of hugging your parents and thanking your family for all their support. And yes, Spencer, babe, I am talking to you. <laughs> when I entered Harvard in 1976 from my hometown of Eagle Rock, in urban Los Angeles, I had no idea what to expect. I had never lived in snow. I was mystified by the rivalry between the fans of the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. I was a Dodgers fan, being from LA. I didn't know anyone at Harvard, and I, I wasn't sure how I'd fit in or even if I would. My father had grown up in poverty as a Mexican-American migrant farm worker. And my mother was a homemaker raising four children on a tight budget. And four years later, when I sat where you are, I imagined that my Harvard experience, as transformative as it was, would end upon graduation. But in fact, it was just the beginning. Since graduation, I have volunteered for Harvard every year in every city that I have lived in, and I've moved a lot. Whenever I've moved someplace new, I would contact the local Harvard club and ask how I could help. My freshman concerns of not knowing how I'd fit into a community were gone forever. I have sat at many event registration tables met the Harvard alumni who came through the door, and listened to captivating lectures by the Harvard faculty. I have also interviewed some of the amazing high school students who apply for admission each year. You can do these things too. My Harvard alumni mantra is, attend, volunteer, learn, and connect. This last year, I traveled around the world with the HAA, meeting alumni leaders in Sofia, Bulgaria, in Santiago, Chile, and in Sydney, Australia. For me, the true magic of Harvard is its people, its extraordinary students, faculty, and alumni. Think about it. You're joining a club that includes presidents, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Nobel Prize winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, Emmy Award winners, technology titans, leaders of social movements. We even have Weezer's Rivers Cuomo and Rashida Jones to make us all feel cool. <laughs> the alumni community that you are about to join 
is here for you. Networking is entirely different from what I thought it was when I was in college. I have discovered that the best networkers want to know what they can do for you. So come to the HAA's next Global Networking Night, which is free of charge and is happening in over 70 cities around the world on June 23rd. Another way to connect is to join a Harvard Shared Interest Group. These are virtual communities of alumni that you access through our website, which is alumni.harvard.edu backslash SIGS. There are now nearly 50 shared interest groups with about 20,000 participating alumni. The groups include Harvard Alumni in Wine and Food, the Harvard Asian American Alumni Alliance, Harvard Alumni Entrepreneurs, Harvard Radcliffe Science Fiction Networking Society, and Harvardwood. All of Harvard's shared interest groups are looking for young alumni and welcome your energy and ideas. For the past three years, I have co-chaired an Alumni Careers Task Force that works closely with the Office of Career Services. Our group has developed a long list of distinguished alumni that spans the entire occupational spectrum. These alumni are here to help you the earliest years of their own careers often involved false starts and meandering. But we also know that who the undergraduates really want to talk to are the recent grads to ask, what is it really like out there? So we hope that a short time from now, you will volunteer through Crimson Compass to aid students in their career explorations. The Harvard Alumni Association will be conducting our annual meeting here tomorrow afternoon. Please join us back here after your house graduation ceremonies conclude. We want you to discover that your Harvard experience turns out to be so much more than your four years here in Cambridge. So here is what I wish for you that your Harvard experience and education does not end with your graduation. That you will choose to remain engaged with the people who have meant so much to you during your years here. That in time, you will become leaders in your professions and in your communities. And that the continuing support of your fellow alumni, both your peers and those who have preceded you, will help sustain you as you change the world. Congratulations, class of 2014. Does anyone have a laptop? I need to go join my local Harvard club. Thank you, thank you, Cynthia. Hi, everyone. My name is Katie Walsh, and I am the 2014 Senior Class Committee Representative from Adams House. Today, I have the honor of introducing our 2014 Senior Gift Committee co-chairs, Arlene Chien, Preetha Havar, Tara Lyons, Kavya Shankar, and Joshua Zhang. Our five co-chairs come from separate segments of Harvard. 
They cover four different academic departments and a slew of different extracurricular pursuits. Yet, they have developed an incredible bond as a team. After a year of close collaboration on Senior Gift, our co-chairs have created a friendship full of memories and silly nicknames. Their friendship is a model of Senior Gift's capacity to bring everyone in 2014 together. Participating in Senior Gift does not just mean donating to Harvard. It means thinking about and appreciating our time here, paying it forward to underclassmen, investing ourselves even more in this institution we love, and creating new while strengthening the long-lasting, incredible relationships we have made here. I am so grateful for what these five individuals have given to our class and to Harvard's future. Please join me in welcoming our 2014 Senior Gift Co-Chairs. Thank you, Katie. Hi, everyone, and happy class day. I'm Marlene. As many of you know, the theme of our senior gift campaign this year was focused around the metaphor of a puzzle. In our messaging and conversations, we try to educate everyone about the important role philanthropy plays at Harvard, and we asked our fellow 2014ers to join us and be a piece of this. We each hold a unique piece of the Harvard College experience, and together we are the class of 2014. Thank you to the 1,185 seniors who decided to make a gift this year, helping us hit 78% participation, the fifth highest senior gift participation mark in the college's history. Hi, I'm Preetha. This year, we had the honor to speak with many of our classmates about their own individual experiences and their reasons for giving back. These conversations were carried out by our 150-person gift committee comprised of seniors who volunteered their time to this important effort. Each conversation yielded a unique narrative, and while we found common threads, it was thought-provoking to glimpse into our classmates' individual Harvard experiences. Our campaign was a class-wide effort, so we really appreciate the feedback and support given to us by our engaging, thoughtful, and incredible classmates. Giving back to Harvard is a way to say thank you, but it is also a way to be a piece of something bigger than ourselves. I'm Tara. Throughout the campaign, we heard an incredible number of compelling reasons for giving back. You gave because Harvard helped you identify your passion, because it helped connect you to incredible friends and mentors. You gave to support the student organizations you have been a part of. You gave because you are about athletics and high-quality advising relationships. You gave because financial aid made your Harvard experience possible in the first place. You gave because you want the classes of 2018 and 2019 and 2020 to have as incredible an experience as you did. Senior Gift serves as the single largest collective act that our class will ever participate in. 
And it is our way of showing both alumni and underclassmen that we care about this place and the transformative qualities that it possesses. Hi everyone, I'm Kavya. Senior gift is only the beginning of a tradition of giving back. And we thank all the seniors who expressed their intention to continue giving. Our gifts today and in the next few years have a huge impact. They motivate and energize other alumni as well as symbolize our vote of confidence in the strength and future of Harvard College. Tomorrow as graduates, we join a community of alumni whose generosity has helped to ensure that Harvard continues to be a remarkable place for all of its students. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Josh Zhang. To conclude, thank you again for listening as we ask all of you to reflect upon your experiences here, where H stands just as much for home as it does for Harvard. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and feedback with us, whether you agreed or disagreed, as we continue to do what Harvard students do best, challenge and motivate one another. Thank you for coming together as a class and giving back and paying it forward so that generations of students after us may enjoy an even more beautiful and robust Harvard. We, the class of 2014, have already accomplished so much during our four years together here as students. I can only imagine what we'll accomplish as alumni. Thank you, 2014. My name is Maria Barragan Santana, and I am incredibly thankful to serve as the Winthrop House Representative to the Senior Class Committee. And it is now my honor to introduce our first student orator this afternoon. Many know this economics concentrator and Winthrop House resident as a business editor at the Harvard Crimson, or as a cast member of the Hasty Pudding Theatricals, or perhaps have seen him perform in other theatrical productions, including playing the role of Adolfo in The Drowsy Chaperone. Most importantly, however, he is a great friend, one who I've had the pleasure of knowing since my freshman year in Thayer when we were in the same entryway. He's the kind of friend who you can count on to help you through the everyday stresses that come with Harvard, believing in you, when you doubt yourself, and celebrating with you when you succeed. So please, help me in joining, and join me in welcoming to stage to deliver the Harvard Mail Oration, my friend, the enthusiastic, inspiring, hardworking, and always supportive, Adam Connor. I failed Harvard. Hello, class of 2014. Let me back up a second. That might have been a bit extreme. Hi, <clears throat> um, Mom. And what's up, Cheryl? Hello. Hi. Um, you know, I did a lot of preparation in writing this speech for you today. 
And I did that mostly by thinking about what a Harvard orator should look and sound like. And what I came up with was an image of a student implementing sophisticated literary elements to effectively wear his intelligence on his sleeve and referencing deep, thoughtful quotes scrawled by erudite classical poets and weaving together brilliantly constructed sentences of solid gold using words taken from deep and thoughtful quotes scrawled by erudite classical poets and maybe even overusing the word erudite. <laughs> but for eight minutes at a podium in Tercentenary Theater, they are unblemished and pristine. They are the ideal Harvard graduate. I don't have any of that for you today. I don't use a lot of metaphors and I barely know what erudite means. Um, some might say that I'm a failure in that regard. And so, today, I come bearing a simple message. We have endured what we perceive as a failure without really even knowing what failure is. We have conflated failure with not getting exactly what we want and in doing so, have diminished our many accomplishments. Take me for example. I am a first-generation college student on one side. I spent the majority of my free time here acting for thousands of people, making them laugh and sometimes making them cry. I was even once kissed square on the mouth by Jack Bauer, if you can believe it. I was. I also couldn't get into a final club. I lost my bid to become business manager of the Harvard Crimson. I sometimes struggled with grades. And I didn't secure a full-time job with the company that I interned with. To the untrained eye, what does that look like? A success or something different? Let me switch gears for a moment. Harvard students, we love to compare. After every exam, we clump together and we talk about what we wrote. I mean, who hasn't done that before? Uh, we check our Facebooks and see just how many people have more impressive jobs or graduate opportunities than we do. Frankly, there's no more blatant comparison of ourselves to others than there is on housing day, and no more blatant perception of failure. I got quadded. I thought that was a failure. I did. I then got N minus two housing within the quad, and I thought that, that's a failure within a failure. That, that's a failception. I think, I think that, I think that Edgar Allan Poe must have written something about that. But. Don't look that up. It's just, it's just strange for a group of individuals handpicked by Harvard admissions to bring continued successes to the greatest university in the world, bar none, to at times feel compelled to focus on looking for miniature failures 
in the comparisons that we draw with one another. Why? I'm not, I'm not saying that comparing is bad. Sometimes comparison is great. The inherent sense of competition among students here is extremely beneficial to our development in some ways. It requires us to perform better and to work harder. A little competition is healthy and it makes you grow. But I am saying that a lot of times we take these comparisons in the most negative way possible. An aspiring doctor may feel relatively unaccomplished when hearing about a friend's cool tech internship. The lack of a thesis paper from your suite of academic accomplishments becomes a perceived intellectual inferiority despite your lack of interest in academic writing. <laughs> Being ignored by or rejected from a social organization becomes an assertion that you may be cool or popular, but just not enough for your peers. And from these differences that we rebrand as deficiencies, we manufacture failure. But we're not failures, are we? No, of course not. Without getting too cloyingly preachy about Harvard, we are all on the path to living out remarkably successful lives. And we knew that from the moment we got here. We opened that email from admissions after smashing the refresh button again and again on our inbox. We saw our acceptance and we said, well, I'm set. <laughs> and in a lot of cases, it didn't even take a year for some of us to see some great thing that one of our peers did and say, whoa, I'm no longer set. Our futures become uncertain to us, often based on something totally out of our control. And what's more, we don't take the time to truly celebrate the success in the first place. It might appear that way sometimes in the form of a celebratory meal or drink or gift, but at a certain point, albeit a relatively minor one, it becomes an issue of you being behind and you needing to catch up so that you're not considered a failure. Now, I don't mean to make Harvard students out to be petulant uh, frenemies who constantly feel pessimistic about their abilities. They're not. They're diverse, down-to-earth, and downright brilliant. Check out that fancy literary device. <laughs> and I'm honored to be counted among the company of such talented individuals. But I am saying that sometimes not being first or the best can sour what we've accomplished and drive us to saying or thinking at some point, I have failed. And as I said before, we are so not failures at all. Look at us. We are poets, musicians, artists. We are athletes and champions at that. We are scientists bound to unlock the greatest discoveries heretofore in human history. We are future politicians 
who will shape this nation for the better. There may even be a future president sitting in this crowd this afternoon. And guess what? That president might not have had a 4.0. And that president may not have gotten the dream job that he or she thought they wanted. And do you know what I'm willing to bet? That president is sitting here today and listening to me talk and looking back on his or her four years and might be reminded of the failures rather than the future. Disregarding all the great things happening right now and those that will happen in the many years to come. So I stand up here before you and I look back at the 45 months since I first stepped into Harvard Yard, I know, it's a lot of months, as a fresh-faced, fledgling freshman. And what do I see? Well, I didn't get the social standing I thought I wanted, or the big leadership position that I thought I wanted, or the grades that I maybe wanted, <laughs> or the job that I thought I definitely wanted. On paper, that looks a lot like failure. That's academic life, personal life, social life, future professional life. On paper, that's a whole lot of nothing. You know what? That's fine. Because I didn't really fail, did I? I just didn't get what I thought I wanted. Instead, I got friendships that will last a lifetime. I got a great job that I love, keeps me close to home. I found a girl that I love, and I got a fantastic education. But I didn't get exactly what I thought I wanted. None of us has always gotten exactly what we want. And at one point or another, we have all considered that failure. And it takes a long time to resolve that perceived failure as a learning experience or as an opportunity for other doors to open. But especially this week, a week spent celebrating our hard work and our triumphs, a week culminating in a commencement, so named because it marks a new beginning, we should start focusing on the success. Because in the end, we can try to measure our relative level of success here at Harvard based on the setbacks and the defeats and the B minuses, or we can take a step back and see just how little that matters in the long run. Only then will we truly recognize how far we've come and how far we'll go. I failed Harvard. Or did I? Thank you.
Good afternoon, class of 2014, friends and family. My name is Yolanda Bourquet, and I am one of the 2014 senior class marshals. Today, I have the distinct privilege and honor of introducing to you a Forest Hammer House native and friend, Christy DiSilvestro. Christy hails from Haverford, Pennsylvania, and has spent much of her time here at Harvard exploring the intersection between psychology and medicine, particularly as it pertains to the psychological issues children and families face after traumatic injury or long-term diagnosis. After graduation, she'll be continuing this passion in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. When I asked several of her friends to describe Christy, the two words that they kept saying were kind and thoughtful. And I am so honored and pleased that she'll be addressing us here today. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our next 2014 Harvard orator, Christy G. Sebastian. A picture, a permanent record of happiness or triumph or love, a small token to ensure that a moment doesn't get lost in the fray. Photographs are everywhere. With the rise of Instagram and the ever-growing Twitter and Facebook perfectly coinciding with our college career, we have endless opportunities to capture moments and freeze them forever. We take pictures of almost everything. We do this so much that we don't think twice about it and might not even realize the significance of what we're capturing. Years from now, we will have the ability to look back on our college days and have an array of memories to focus on, never having to lose a flash of happiness as we grow more distant from Harvard. But what about the memories that we don't capture on film? The times when unexpected challenges stop us in our tracks. These are the moments when snapping a selfie is the furthest thought from our minds. Think of all the tough times that you've faced, or the obstacles you've helped a friend overcome and how that's affected you as a person. Think about surprising opportunities that came your way and caused you to choose a different path than you had predicted. The truth is, when we experience something that changes us forever, whether it is good or bad, we don't use an iPhone to save it. We remember these moments forever without the help of a lens. They can't be captured in a picture. No words can easily describe them, and yet they define our self-portrait. When we first arrived on campus, we were filled with the frenzy and excitement of early freshman year. We had the opportunity to entirely reinvent ourselves, starting fresh in a place where no one had prior impressions of us. It was an adventurous, turn-on-the-camera type of experience. When we pictured the story of our new lives and the path that we would travel on for the next four years. Now imagine that you could read a letter written by that wide-eyed freshman year self about who you were and what you wanted to become. What would be your reaction today? Would those hopes and beliefs map onto who you have become as an individual? For all of us, our college experience and even our identities did not unfold in exactly the way we imagined. We have since migrated from that first mold that we made, but the changes we've experienced have made us into stronger, more mature, and more resilient individuals. 
The event that has changed me the most crashed down on me in the spring of my freshman year as a varsity water polo player. A double hip injury assaulted my body and left me unable to walk within days. The injury resulted in two extensive surgeries and over six months on crutches. For more than two years, I could not sit, stand, or walk liberally. Not only could I not play sports, I couldn't navigate campus, go to class, or live the normal life of a college student. I took one semester of final exams lying down in a bed in UHS, and another semester of finals standing and writing at a podium while the proctor sat at the desks because I could not sit. I was constantly in pain. But as our challenges often do, this time of darkness showed me light and laughter in places I never expected. An endearing new nickname, Crutchy, that I heard more often <laughs> than my real name, and a pair of crutches that I covered in zebra tape helped give me a boost when moving at a snail's pace. I received help from people I had never met, from people whose names I would never know. Harvard is notorious for its selective hand-picking of students, and through my experience, I learned that this campus is full of the most compassionate people. I never felt alone in such a warm community and received a helping hand from everyone around me. In return, the most I could do was lend my crutches to friends at parties to help them meet guys, a tactic <laughs> that we found surprisingly successful. <laughs> Tiny moments morphed into great memories. Picture a handsome guy you have a crush on inviting you to a party that you decline because you can't walk up the stairs, so he offers to give you a piggyback. I had to rely on others for almost everything that I did. Even your classic Sunday morning walk of shame was no longer independent. It's an entirely different experience when he has to carry you back to your dorm while his roommate carries your crutches alongside him. <laughs> if you're thinking that would be awkward and hilarious, it totally was. But these memories are now my most endearing treasures that sparked the beginning of a long-lasting relationship. When I look back at the journey of my injury, my goals and my impression of how I might fit into this community completely changed. I tried to hold on to water polo for two years after I was hurt, but I eventually had to let that go. I learned to immerse myself in joy. I learned how important it is to surround yourself with the people who lift you up, in my case, sometimes literally, and walk away from the ones who bring you down. My injury was not a time I was ready to pull out the camera and document, but it was important and life-changing. Many of our greatest life lessons are not learned in class or read in a textbook. We all tackled a huge transition from the safety net of living at home with our families to the autonomy of a college campus. When we faced struggles, we were forced to rely on our friends and peers. We became mentors and shoulders to lean on for others. Their hard times became our challenges, just as their moments of joy became our celebrations. We created a new definition of family, one that included all those who were alongside us for our hurdles and heartaches. Through this process, we developed our own unique identities, preparing us to take on the real world. 
No matter what has caused you to change over the past few years, embrace those changes and who you have become as a result. Maybe you took an elective senior year and surprised yourself with how much you enjoyed the material, making you rethink your career path late in the game. Maybe you had issues with roommates and adjusting to a new living situation at the beginning of a school year. Perhaps you made a mistake, caused harm that you took the steps to remedy and make right. Maybe you received inspiring advice that made you turn your life around and walk with more confidence. When you think of the big moments that have affected your college career, you don't need a digital photograph to remember them. One event, the Boston Marathon, affected and unified us unlike any other. Everyone remembers where they were junior year when they heard about the detonations, even if they weren't at the marathon experiencing the terrifying panic firsthand. Everyone remembers the entire day of lockdown later that week and the relief when it was over. This disaster taught us the importance of appreciating the strangers around us, knowing that at any given moment, they could be the very ones to save us. It taught us to run to help others rather than running away. As a class leaning on each other, we grew from this tragedy and became stronger because of it. Eventually, we learned that it's okay if something blindsides us and causes us to stray from the plan we thought we were executing. Sometimes these blindsides can teach us to appreciate what is around us even more than we did before. I personally have a renewed appreciation for the little things that surround me. I now appreciate the ability to walk freely around campus, the ability to concentrate without the constant reminder of physical pain, the ability to see someone struggling and be able to offer him or her that helping hand instead of only receiving it. All these major changes we have experienced in college, the good and the bad times that shape us, these are the images, the captured memories that aren't in a Facebook album, but instead compile and create the album of us, the self-portrait with moments we will always hold dear. Embrace the changes that come your way and enrich your development as a person. Enjoy the little things, for one day, you may look back and realize they were the big things. So enjoy all the laughs that make life so wonderful. But also, take time to stop and think about all the moments and changes that actually got you to where you are today. The people you've leaned on and those who have leaned on you the friends you've celebrated with in triumph and progress, the unexpected side roads that you've traveled on. And then, yes, take a picture. But be sure to appreciate the entire self-portrait you are truly capturing. And when something memorable comes your way, don't ever hesitate to say, but first, let me take a selfie. <laughs> Thank you. Good afternoon, faculty, friends, family, and the class of 2014. My name is Katherine Philbin, and I am thrilled to be serving as the representative from the great Dunster House. 
Today, it is my honor to introduce the Richard Glover and Henry Russell Ames Memorial Award. As many of you already know, the members of the class of 2014 have shown a great commitment to the service of others. This includes the service to Harvard, the nation, and our global community. Many members of our great class have gone four years without any recognition for their hard work, compassion, and determination to help others. However, the Ames Award works to honor two unsung heroes of our class. On June 19, 1935, Richard Glover Ames and Henry Russell Ames, brothers and Harvard students, gave their lives to save their father, who was washed overboard during a storm off the coast of Newfoundland. Every year since, the Ames Award has been given in their memory to recognize two members of our class who have shown energy in helping others and who exhibit the same heroic character and inspiring leadership as the Ames brothers. The selection committee received a large number of nominations from faculty, housemasters, tutors, and fellow seniors, and the decision process was incredibly difficult, and we could not be more proud of our classmates who have made such a tremendous impact on their communities. I invite all of the nominees for this year's Ames Award to please stand and be recognized. It is my pleasure to introduce Akshay Sharma, class marshal, who will present the first recipient of the Ames Award. Thank you, Kath. Good afternoon. What a beautiful day. <laughs> Congratulations again to all the nominees, and thank you for your outstanding leadership and heroism in service to others. The Ames Award is presented annually as the senior class leaves the gates of Harvard. And it reminds us the importance of connecting, engaging, and serving in the communities that we are about to enter. Each one of us has within ourselves the potential to affect positive change in this world. When we combine the skills we have developed the passions that we have cultivated here with an awareness of the existing need. Ultimately, the success that we measure in our lives will not be defined by how high we reach or how far we travel, but by how many lives we change. Our first of today's Ames Award recipients has been dedicated in his pursuit to help those in need. In the face of grave financial adversity, his sheer passion for learning and high scholastic achievement afforded him the opportunity to receive a fully funded primary education. Upon arriving at Harvard, he has set to the task of giving back 
to the community that supported him in the past. Originally from Swaziland, a country with one of the highest incidence rates of HIV infection in the world, he has dedicated his last four years to combating the disease that claimed many in his community, both friends and family. He has spent the last three years at the Reagan Institute of MIT, Harvard, and the Massachusetts General Hospital researching the immunological basis of HIV. He spent summers at the Don McKinsey Hospital in Durban, South Africa, implementing testing, counseling, and treatment adherence programs for HIV. And last year, he founded an organization by the name of Saubona Health, tasked with increasing and improving the health of HIV patients globally by increasing patient adherence to integral antiretroviral therapies. Next year, he will be back in his home country, Swaziland, working to combat and find solutions to structural problems linked to poor HIV treatment adherence, mainly food security. Members of this recipient's house community at Harvard are confident that he will succeed in bringing about a genuine transformation in his community. They cite the nobility and genuineness of his passion for public service. And all the while, his extraordinary achievement is coupled with genuine humility. Please join me in congratulating our first Ames Award recipient, resident of Forsheimer House, fellow member of the class of 2014, a healer of the world and hero, Majahanke Shabangu. Now my honor to introduce Aaron Drake, class marshal, who will present the second recipient of the Ames Award. <laughs> Thank you, Kath, and congratulations again, Marchankai. Hello, class of 2014. You all look very warm out there. <laughs> it's warming me up here. Okay. Our next Richard Glover Ames and Henry Russell Ames Award goes to a woman who's recommended described her as a force of nature, an advocate, a mentor, and someone who is relentlessly loyal, keeping her friends a top priority even when school and extracurriculars could easily distract. This woman is someone who I, 
and many of you have met over the past four years. She was a participant in the first year urban program, a peer counselor for room 13, and a tireless volunteer, supervisor, and director at the Phillips Brooks House Association's Harvard Square Homeless Shelter. Alternatively, you could know her as that girl who had a Facebook picture with Drake. <laughs> During her time here, she has studied psychology, but has learned to be a selfless leader and someone who friends describe as more dependable than anyone, compassionate and empathetic. Now, she leads a team of students in their effort to establish the first entirely student-run youth homeless shelter in the nation. Regardless of when or how you came into contact with her, I'm sure she didn't just list off her activities, leadership roles, and famous friends as I just did. I'm sure of that because, like most unsung heroes, she lets her work speak for itself. Well, today, on a day when there's time and an opportunity to honor two of many unsung heroes in our class, join me in congratulating the next 2014 Richard Glover, Richard Glover Ames and Henry Russell Ames Award recipient, Tara Rosencrantz. Congratulations to the 2014 Ames re recipients. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Reina Gandhi, and I'm the proud representative of Mather House on the Senior Class Committee. I'm Basil Williams, and I'm proud to be the representative of Forsheimer House. Looking back to when we last sat in this yard during our freshman conv uh, convocation, we had high hopes for the next four years. We expected that we would change, that we would grow and develop into smarter and more thoughtful scholars, citizens, and people. Yet, what we didn't necessarily think about then was how growth depends not only on positive change, but also on loss. Each loss develops our character, teaches us something new about life, and may challenge or reinforce our own beliefs. The most tragic losses involve the passing of those who we love. Many of us have lost relatives, family, friends, and classmates without whom we would not have reached this occasion. There are classmates who started with us at Harvard but will not be walking with us at commencement tomorrow. These classmates have shaped our experiences here and deserve to be recognized for their contribution as, as long with ours. Please join us in a moment of silence to remember family, friends, and members of the university community who are not amongst us today.
Thank you. As we graduate tomorrow, we wonder, where do we go from here? We'll be facing new challenges after we pass through these gates. Yet we don't have to face them alone. Cody Laramie wrote, we are part of lives we have yet to live and see. The lives we are a part of are not just our own, but those of our loved ones as well. Reach out to those around you for support and guidance. Hold on to the memories and relationships we've built during our time here. They can help carry us through both challenging times and triumphant times, trying times, and joyous times. Thank you. Good afternoon, seniors, friends, family, and loved ones joining us here today. Thank you to Raina and Basil for their touching and beautiful remarks. My name is Anthony Palillo, and I am one of the 2014 senior class marshals. <laughs> I am honored and excited to be introducing Quincy House native and a good friend, Jenna Martin, as our 2014 female Ivy orator. Jenna is originally from Los Angeles, California. At Harvard, Jenna was an English concentrator, the head writer of On Harvard Time, an on-campus comedic news show, and a member of the Lampoon Lit staff. Jenna was also involved with sketch comedy on campus, and during her summers, she interned at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and The New Yorker, where she was published twice on the magazine's website. After graduation, she will be returning to Los Angeles to pursue a career as a television writer. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming the amazing, extremely talented, and wonderful Jenna Martin, our 2014 female Ivy orator. Thank you, Anthony. <clears throat> I'd like to thank you all for coming, family and friends especially, because, let's face it, no one likes going to graduations. <laughs> With apologies to any recent middle school graduates, kindergarten graduation is the last cute one. <laughs> And coming to this one is like going to a wedding for 1,655 couples when you really only care about one. <laughs> if that. <laughs> to the esteemed professors and TFs, you've been to so many graduations that I sincerely hope you're playing a drinking game to get through this one. I'll even say some keywords to get you chugging. Harvard. Graduation. Future. Compassion. To the class of 2014, I imagine we're all feeling some mix of anxiety and relief. And if you're anything like me, a little bit of anxiety isn't enough to overwhelm whatever else you're feeling. 
That anxiety can make you prematurely nostalgic for the days when your biggest problem was a five to seven page paper, also known as a four page paper with wide margins and a really long title. <laughs> or when your biggest problem was that you have too many advisors. By now, each of us has had a freshman advisor, a peer advising fellow, a proctor, a resident dean of freshmen. Those last two are different, by the way. A sophomore advisor, an Alston Burr resident dean, a sophomore advising coordinator, a concentration advisor, and for the masochistic, a thesis advisor. <laughs> I sincerely thank all of my advisors. But I just want to put it out there that Luke Skywalker defeated the Empire with only one advisor. And he spoke in incoherent aphorisms, had crazily inconvenient office hours, and never once offered Luke a mini Mr. Goodbar. <laughs> Despite the luxury of too many advisors, there are some questions on our minds right now that no one can answer for certain. Like, will the clubs I joined be enough to convince my future children that I used to be cool? Will my concentration have any application in the real world? It's common at this point to bring up folklore and mythology. But I don't think Celtic studies gets the attention it deserves. Most people either don't know what that is or think you're pronouncing it wrong. And perhaps the scariest question of all, did I peak in college? I think that there are two, and only two, answers to this question. Absolutely not, and you know, probably. <laughs> I'll entertain the you know probably answer first. We're about to enter a scary world where our dumb mistakes will be met with a dubious look and a wisecrack about where we went to college. At least here, if someone says, Ugh, there's no way you go to Harvard, it's usually a pickup line. speak from my own fears of having peaked in college. When I first came to Harvard, a part of me just wanted to study English and write comedy, but another part of me wanted to discover something new that would become my passion, like anthropology or conceptual art, but hopefully investment banking. <laughs> Four years later, I'm getting a degree in English, and every club I joined was somehow related to comedy, with the arguable exception of the lampoon. 
turns out I can't be changed. If I may sum up my experience in a metaphor, I'm sorry, a simile. <laughs> Who says an English degree is useless? I'm like one of television's many illustrious bad boys. Don Draper, Tony Soprano, Chuck Bass. Harvard's gen ed requirements and activity fairs are like another character who thinks it can change me, but sorry, Harvard, I can't be changed. <laughs> and that's why this day makes me sad. Because not only can I no longer compare myself to Don Draper, but I also don't know for certain if I'll find another place where I can be so completely myself and still have friends and feel fulfilled. Where else will I be surrounded by so many people just being their dorky selves and doing what they love? Except at a white collar prison. <laughs> So, maybe it's all downhill from here. Just like it's been downhill for commencement day speakers since Oprah came last year. <laughs> but I mean seriously. Good luck tomorrow, former mayor of something what's-his-face. However, the one thing I do like about graduation also leads me to believe that we didn't all peak in college. My fellow graduates, there's probably someone in the class of 2014 who makes you think, well, I'm screwed, but that guy is going to be amazing. <laughs> well, <clears throat> graduation allows you to share something with that person. And I'll bet there's someone else who feels the same way about you. Why, the person who looks up to you could even be speaking right now, if your name is Zamila Chan. <laughs> if you're still worried that you might have peaked in college, then think of your favorite Harvard grad. Could be JFK, could be Natalie Portman, Mine, hands down, is John Adams. <laughs> I mean, his life probably didn't turn out the way he expected when he graduated, but he still became our second president. You might even say he was the Yale of presidents. <laughs> He married an incredible lady and inspired an entire mini-series. <laughs> when I was accepted into Harvard, I couldn't wait to go to the same school as our grouchiest founding father. You might even say I came for the John Adams and then stayed for the Sam Adams. <laughs> Yeah, but please don't say that. My parents are in the audience. <laughs> My point is, the person who made you excited to come here 
should also make you excited to leave. Class of 2014, I'm not saying you can do anything. As you will discover tomorrow, you can't look good in a cap and gown. <laughs> but at least there's a good chance you didn't peak in college. Congratulations to the class of 2014 and their families. Thank you, Jenna, for a beautiful oration. Good afternoon, class of 2014, friends, and family. My name is Natalia Duarte, and I am the senior class committee representative for Leverett House. <laughs> Yay, bunnies! <laughs> the person I am now introducing actually once had the task of introducing me at a Leverett House charity date auction. <laughs> When I thought I was going to be going for the lowest bid, he turned the tables, riled up the crowd with southern twang and innuendos, and somehow had me auctioned as one of the most expensive prizes of the night. He made me feel like the bell of the ball, and now I must do the same. Today, I have the distinct privilege of introducing someone who is not only a fellow Leverett House resident, he's a very dear friend to me and has been over my time at Harvard. Zach Guzman is, not, is one of those rare individuals who always somehow manages to make your day and with whom there's never a dull moment. Originally from Virginia, Zach has anchored Harvard's sketch comedy show on Harvard Time and broadcasted sports for WHRB, Harvard Student Radio Station, including a recent stint in Spokane, Washington, covering Harvard's March Madness victory. This experience got him a full five seconds of fame on television. Zach would like to thank his roommates, Andrew Walsh, Joe Lehrer, Matt Lowe, and James Sun for always being there for him. And even though this isn't a date auction, Zach would like to remind the ladies of the crowd that love knows no age. <laughs> Getting a little desperate, aren't we? Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I present to you Zach Guzman, your 2014 male Ivy orator. Thank you, Natalia. Hello, fellow classmates, family, and encroached upon squirrels of the yard. <laughs> My name is Zach Guzman, and I am in love. I have been in an ongoing relationship for quite some time, and perhaps some of you out in the audience, or dare I say sitting up here with me on stage, might think that this is a foolish notion. But I am not alone. I wouldn't be surprised if every one of us in the class of 2014 said the same thing. You see, our love affair started even before we met the love of our lives. In high school, we were desperately searching for a significant other, and we set our eyes on the most sought-after, desirable piece of assuredness on the market. 
She had everything my hormone-filled teen self could ask for. Intellect, financial stability, and as we saw with the whole satanic black mask thing, a reverse tiger mom in Drew Faust who allowed Harvard the freedom to do whatever she wanted in the basement. But as we learned at the first chance dance, you can't just walk up and tell someone you want to spend the rest of your life with him or her. No, no. As society dictates, the more appropriate strategy is to tell this to their friend. <laughs> to instill the appropriate level of jealousy, I reached out to Stanford, Harvard's Tanner, Californian friend. But amidst the chit-chat of startups, golf, and something about the weather being an unbearable 64 degrees, I decided to cut things off. It would be better for her this way. And in the end, we caught Harvard's eye. The true problem, though, was how many others saw what we saw in our love. On our Tinder profile, which, for the parents in the crowd, is today's premier and shadiest iPhone dating app. Harvard had 35,023 people swipe her to the right, which you only do with the most attractive users. <laughs> to put that in perspective, some of you might not know this, in my four years here, my farmer's only profile, which is described as Tinder for, quote, good old country folk, <laughs> has been viewed only once by a farmer in rural mass with the username XOXO, Harvard Sexy Fun Guy, hashtag Fiendeaster. <laughs> Serious love prospects only, Dean Feaster. <laughs> but lo and behold, we were swiped to the right too, sparking the honeymoon phase where nothing at all about the other person could bother you. Not her coldness, not her crippling fear to only refer to herself as a school in Boston when others ask, and not the kinky demands that everyone pee on John Harvard's foot in order to graduate. <laughs> we found it cute that security guards wanted to check and make sure we weren't stealing books from the library. You didn't mind the fact that Hud's idea of culinary variety meant variously colored yet strangely similarly tasting sauces on top of freshly caught, cage-free, endangered fish known simply as swai. <laughs> and, if it wasn't beef fettuccine Alfredo night, which God help us all if it was, <laughs> you didn't mind Harvard bought the recycled fiberglass version of single-ply toilet paper and limited your use to two rolls per week. Yet after a while, as is the case with most relationships, the luster began to wear. It didn't take long to discover we were captives of a crazed romantic. Suddenly, Harvard wanted to put a label on everything. What is your concentration? The answer to this question depended on each of our prior interests. Perhaps you wanted something serious, so you chose Gov. Maybe you wanted something casual, so you chose applied mathematics. <laughs> if you had a crush on Governor Chris Christie or Beyonce, 
You chose economics because you heard Eck had even better curves. <laughs> but by junior year, I started to doubt why I ever fell in love with Harvard in the first place. I no longer found backpack checking in Lamont Library cute and started to play the game, how many books can I steal without the security guard noticing? <laughs> Two course packs, a signed copy of Mancuse's textbook, and an Orangina is a personal best. <laughs> then word got out we might have cheated on her, or at least collaborated with multiple individuals, <laughs> causing Harvard to read through all of our emails. Yet still, with all of Harvard's quirks, senior year reminded us that time is fleeting. Oh, what you wouldn't give now to be back with Harvard in the stacks of Widener one last time. <laughs> I myself have a memory of discussing my grade with the TF in the stacks, only to learn I couldn't get it up. <laughs> Perhaps you too have fond memories. But this doesn't need to be goodbye, and I don't believe today is a breakup. In fact, it looks more like a wedding. I mean, our parents are here. They've paid quite the dowry. <laughs> and Harvard's reverse tiger mom is still nowhere to be found. And perhaps it's easy to think that we're all marrying out of our league when we look at Harvard's exes. I mean, just off the top of my head, I could name presidents. Henry David Thoreau, Bill Gates, Tommy Lee Jones, and the artist formerly known as, and still known as, Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> Yet with all of that in mind, we must not forget, Harvard chose us too. She liked us enough to put a one ring on it. It's not a one-sided relationship like most of those we knew in high school. Tomorrow, we will leave, but be bonded forever. My father, who is Mexican, which really doesn't have anything to do with this part of the story, <laughs> I just mention it because the last time I did, Harvard accepted me. <laughs> so I'll throw it out there again. He once told me, marry the right person and life, no matter how difficult the challenges you might face, will always be fun. I have no doubt our challenges will get more serious than our complaints of having to walk 10 minutes to get to biolabs, dealing with getting snubbed from Harvard's student model fashion show, four years in a row. <laughs> Probably because you're too good looking or stomaching an endangered fish. Seriously, that last one's not a joke. Google it, S-W-A-I. Someone's got to do something about it. <laughs> but through it all, Harvard will be there with us. And even though we might be marrying someone roughly 354 years older than us, Harvard's vitality has never wavered. AKA, don't plan on getting any of the endowment, you dirty gold diggers. <laughs> to conclude, I'd like to congratulate the happy couple that is all of us and all that we have gained in our four years we've been together. 
Despite what those jealous of our liberal arts schooling might say, truly think of all the applicable gifts we've been given. I mean, just for myself, tomorrow I graduate with a Spanish citation, which means I can legally hablas espanol. <laughs> I get a degree in economics, which means according to the study I just conducted with the only other econ alum up on stage, I'm gonna be a billionaire. <laughs> and a woman. Yes, I will be a billionaire, provided, of course, I download the lean-in audiobook on my iPod and immediately delete the contradictory message delivered by Fat Joe's 2004 hip-hop classic, Lean Back. How Miss Sandberg can refute Mr. Joe's well-articulated thesis of pulling up your pants, doing the rockaway, and proceeding to lean back, lean back, lean back, is not my place to say. But I am sure she will address such in her speech. And, as if that wasn't enough, I get a secondary in neurobiology, which means I only need to operate on brains if someone who concentrated in neurobiology isn't around. Your gifts might be these, most likely even better than these. The point is, we've worked hard to get here, even harder to get here today, and I'd wager once we are thrown into a world without great inflation, probably our hardest tomorrow. <laughs> but we are ready. With our fair spouse at our side, we say I do. And before consummation tomorrow, Before consummation, I'd like to propose a toast. <laughs> I thought there was champagne served at these things for all of you, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> May we live our lives not comparing to those that came before our class or those that may come after, but rather cherishing the comfort, knowing that we will have this place that we love forever in our hearts for the rest of our lives, till death do us part. Cheers and congratulations, class of 2014. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Irene Chen, and I am a proud representative of Cabot House on the Senior Class Committee. Hi, my name is Ginny Foz, and I am one of your 2014 Senior Class Marshals. We are very honored today to introduce our featured guest and our keynote speaker, Cheryl Sandberg, who has made significant contributions in government, business, and technology. Cheryl graduated from Harvard in 1991, a time when laptops didn't exist and very few students used computers. Cheryl used Harvard's computer system only once as an undergraduate, 
to run regressions for her senior thesis. She remembers storing her data on large, heavy magnetic tapes that she had to lug in big boxes around campus. She had to stay up all night spinning tapes to input her thesis data, and when she tried to execute her final calculations, she brought down the entire computer system. So years before Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, famously crashed the Harvard Computer Network, our speaker beat him to it. The data was worth the crash, and Cheryl graduated with a, with a summa cum laude degree in economics. She went on to Harvard Business School, where she graduated top of her class in 1995, and later served as the Chief of Staff to the United States Secretary of the Treasury, Larry Summers, who had been her thesis, thesis advisor. In 2001, she joined Google in its early stages as Vice President of Global Online Sales and Operations. Then, in 2008, Mark Zuckerberg approached her about joining a growing company called Facebook. Cheryl became Facebook's chief operating officer and just celebrated her sixth year there. During her undergraduate years, Cheryl was an enthusiastic Harvard booster who gave tours with the Crimson Key Society, taught aerobics in the Mac five days a week, and served as a big sister for a program through the Phillips Brooks House Association. Today, Cheryl is aiming to be every woman's big sister. In 2013, she released her first book, Lean In, which looks at barriers, both internal and external, that prevent women from taking leadership roles in the workplace. Her book inspired the Lean In movement, which provides women with tools and community support to help them achieve their ambitions. In selecting a keynote speaker, we were hoping to find someone who had demonstrated an extraordinary ability to succeed, someone who has taken significant professional risks, someone who has been an advocate for a pressing social issue, and someone who can lead us all in aerobics. <laughs> Cheryl meets all these criteria. Please welcome Cheryl Sandberg. Thank you. Congratulations, everyone. You made it. And I don't mean to the end of college. I mean to class day. Because if memory served, some of your classmates had too many scorpion bowls at the Kong last night and aren't with us today. Given the weather, the one thing Harvard hasn't figured out how to control. Some of your other classmates are someplace warm with a hot cocoa. So you have many reasons to feel proud of yourselves as you sit here today. Congratulations to your parents. You have spent a lot of money so your child can say she went to a small school near Boston. And thank you to the class of 2014 for inviting me to be part of your celebration. It means a great deal to me. And looking at the list of past speakers was a little daunting. I can't be as funny as Amy Poehler, but I'm going to be funnier than Mother Teresa. <laughs> 25 years ago, a man named Dave I did not know at the time, but who would one day become my husband, was sitting where you are sitting today. 23 years ago, I was sitting where you are sitting today. 
Dave and I are back this weekend with our amazing son and daughter to celebrate his reunion. And we both share the same sentiment. Harvard has a good basketball team. <laughs> Standing here in the yard brings memories flooding back for me. I arrived here from Miami in the fall of 1987 with big hopes and even bigger hair. I was assigned to live in one of Harvard's historic monuments to great architecture, Canaday. <laughs> My go-to outfit, and I'm not making this up, was a jean skirt, white leg warmers and sneakers, and a Florida sweatshirt. Because my parents, who were here with me then as they're here with me now, told me everyone would think it was awesome that I was from Florida. <laughs> At least we didn't have Instagram. For me, Harvard was a series of firsts. My first winter coat, we didn't need those in Miami. My first 10-page paper, they didn't assign those in my high school. My first C, after which my proctor told me that she was on the admissions committee, and I got, in, I got admitted to Harvard for my personality, not my academic potential. <laughs> the first person I ever met from boarding school, I thought that was for really troubled kids. The first person I ever met who shared a name with a whole building, or so I met when the first classmate I met was Sarah Wigglesworth, who bore no relation at all to the dorm, which would have been nice to know at that very intimidating moment. But then I went on to meet others. Francis Strauss, James Weld, Jessica Science Center B. <laughs> My first love, my first heartbreak, the first time I realized I loved to learn, and the first and very last time I saw anyone read anything in Latin. <laughs> when I sat in your seat all those years ago, I knew exactly where I was headed. I had it all planned out. I was going to the World Bank to work on global poverty, then I would go to law school, then I would spend my life working in a nonprofit or in the government. At Harvard's commencement tomorrow, as your dean described, each school is going to stand up and graduate together, the college, the law school, the med school, and so on. At my graduation, my class cheered for the PhD students and then booed the business school. Business school seemed like such a sellout. Eighteen months later, I applied to business school. <laughs> It wasn't that I was wrong about what I would do decades after graduating. I had it wrong a year and a half later. And even if I could have predicted I would one day work in the private sector, I never could have predicted Facebook, because there was no internet. And Mark Zuckerberg was in elementary school, <laughs> already wearing his hoodie. Not locking into a path too early, gave me an opportunity to go into a new and life-changing field. And for those of you who think I owe everything to good luck, after candidate, I got quadded. <laughs> What's up, Adam? <laughs> there is no straight path from your seat today to where you are going. Don't try to draw that line. You will not just get it wrong, you will miss big opportunities. And I mean big, like the internet. Careers are not ladders. Those days are long gone, but jungle gyms. Don't just move up and down. Don't just look up. Look backwards, sideways, around corners. 
Your career and your life will have starts and stops and zigs and dags. Don't stress out about the white space, the path you can't draw, because therein lies both the surprises and the opportunities. As you open yourself up to possibility, the most important thing I can tell you today is to open yourself up to honesty, to telling the truth to each other, to being honest with yourselves, and to being honest about the world we live in. If you watch children, you will immediately notice how honest they are. My friend Betsy was pregnant, and her son, with her second child, her son Sam was five, he wanted to know where the baby was in her body. So he asked mommy, are the baby's arms in your arms? And she said, no, no, Sam, baby's in my tummy, whole baby. Mom, are the baby's legs in your legs? No, Sam. Whole baby's in my tummy. Then mommy, what's growing in your butt? <laughs> As adults, we are almost never this honest, and that can be a very good thing. When I was pregnant with our first child, I asked my husband Dave if my butt was getting big. At first he didn't answer, but I pressed, so he said, yeah, a little. For years, my sister-in-law said about him what people will now say about you for the rest of your life when you do something dumb. And that guy went to Harvard. <laughs> Hearing the truth at different times along the way would have helped me. I would not have admitted it easily when I sat where you sit. But when I graduated, I was much more worried about my love life than my career. I thought I only had a few years, very limited time, to find one of the good guys before he was too or before they were all taken or I got too old. So I moved to DC, I met a good guy, and I got married at the nearly decrepit age of 24. <laughs> I married a wonderful man, but I had no business making that kind of commitment. I didn't know who I was or who I wanted to be. My marriage fell apart within a year, something that was really embarrassing and painful at the time. And it did not help that so many friends came up to me and said, I never knew that, never thought that was going to work, or I knew you two weren't right for each other. No one had managed to say anything like that to me before I marched down an aisle when it would have been far more useful. <laughs> and as I lived through those painful months of separation and divorce, boy, did I wish they had. And boy, did I wish I had asked them. At the same time in my professional life, someone did speak up. My first boss out of college was Lant Pritchett, an economist who teaches at the Kennedy School, who's here with us today. After I deferred law school for the second time, Lant sat me down and said, I don't think you should go to law school at all. I don't think you want to go to law school. I think you think you should because you told your parents you would many years ago. He noted that he had never once heard me talk about the law with any interest. I know how hard it can be to be honest with each other, even your closest friends, even when they're about to make serious mistakes. But I bet sitting here today, you know your closest friends' strengths, weaknesses, what cliff they might drive off. And I bet for the most part, you've never told them. And they've never asked. Ask them. Ask them for the truth because it will help you. And when they answer honestly, know that that's what makes them real friends. Asking for feedback is a really important habit to get into. 
as you leave the structure of the school calendar and exams and grades behind. On many jobs, if you want to know how you're doing, you're going to have to ask, and then you're going to have to listen without getting defensive. Take it from me, listening to criticism is never fun, but it's the only way we can improve. A few years ago, Mark Zuckerberg decided he wanted to learn Chinese. And in order to practice, he started trying to have work meetings with some of our Facebook colleagues who are native speakers. Now, you would think his very limited language skills would keep these conversations from being useful. One day, he asked a woman who was there how it was going, how did she like Facebook? She answered with a long and pretty complicated sentence. So he said, you know, simpler, please. She spoke again. Simpler, please. This went back and forth a couple of times, so she just blurted out in frustration, my manager is bad. <laughs> that he understood. So often the truth is sacrificed to conflict avoidance, or by the time we speak the truth, we've used so many caveats and preambles that the message totally gets lost. So as you ask each other for the truth and other people, can you elicit it in simple and clear language? And when you speak your truth, can you use simple and clear language? As hard as it is to be honest with other people, it can be even more difficult to be honest with ourselves. For years after I had children, I would say pretty often, I don't feel guilty working, even when no one asked. Someone might say, Cheryl, how's your day today? And I would say, great, I don't feel guilty working. <laughs> or, do I need a sweater? Yes, it's unpredictably freezing, and I don't feel guilty working. <laughs> I was kind of like a parrot with issues. Then one day, on the treadmill, I was reading this article in a sociology journal about how people don't start out lying to other people, they start out lying to themselves. And the things we repeat most frequently are often those lies. So as sweat was pouring down my face, I started wondering, well, what do I repeat pretty frequently? And I realized, I feel guilty working. I then did a lot of research, and I spent an entire year with my dear friend, Nell Scovell, writing a book talking about how I was thinking and feeling. And I'm so grateful that so many women around the world connected to it. My book, of course, was called Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I can see a lot of you connected to it as well. We have even more work to do in being honest about the world we live in. We don't always see the hard truths, and once we see them, we don't always have the courage to speak out. When my classmates and I were in college, we thought the fight for gender equality was won, it was over. Sure, most of the leaders in every industry were men, but we thought changing that was just a matter of time. Lamont Library, right over there, one generation before us, didn't let women through its doors. But by the time we sat in your seats, everything was equal. Harvard and Radcliffe was fully integrated. We didn't need feminism because we were already equals. We were wrong. I was wrong. The world was not equal then, and it is not equal now. I think nowadays, we don't just hide ourselves from the hard truths and shut our eyes to the inequities, but we suffer from the tyranny of low expectations. In the last election cycle in the United States, women won 20% of the Senate seats, 
And all the headlines kept screaming out, women take over the Senate, women take over the Senate. I felt like screaming back, wait a minute, everyone, 50% of the population getting 20% of the seats? That's not a takeover. That's an embarrassment. Just a few months ago, this year, a very well-respected and well-known business executive in Silicon Valley invited me to give a speech to his club on social media. I'd been to this club a few months before when I had been invited for a friend's birthday. It was a beautiful building, and I was wandering around, looking at it, looking for the women's room, when a staff member informed me very firmly that the ladies' room was over there, and I should be sure not to go upstairs because women are never allowed in this building. I didn't realize I was in an all-male club until that minute. I spent the rest of the night wondering what I was doing there, wondering what everyone else was doing there, wondering if any of my friends in San Francisco would invite me to, to a party at a club that didn't allow blacks or Jews or Asians or gays. Being invited to give a business speech at this club hit me as even more egregious because you couldn't claim that it was only social, business wasn't done there. My first thought was, really? Really? A year after lean-in, this dude thought it was a good idea to invite me to give a speech to his literal all-boys club. And he wasn't alone. There was an entire committee of well-respected businessmen who joined him in issuing this kind invitation. To paraphrase Groucho Marx, and don't worry, I won't try to do the voice, I don't want to speak at any club that won't have me as a member. So I said no, and I did it in a way I probably wouldn't have even five years before. I wrote a long and passionate email arguing that they should change their policies. They thanked me for my prompt response and wrote that perhaps things will eventually change. Our expectations are too low. Eventually needs to become immediately. We need to see the truth and speak the truth. We tolerate discrimination and we pretend that opportunity is equal. Yes, we elected an African-American president, but racism is pervasive still. Yes, there are women who run Fortune 500 companies, 5% to be precise, but our road there is still paved with words like pushy and bossy, while our male peers are leaders and results-focused. African-American women have to prove that they're not angry. Latinas risk being branded at fiery hotheads. A group of Asian-American women and men at Facebook wore pins one day that said, I may or may not be good at math. Yes, Harvard has a woman president. And in two years, the United States may have a woman president. But in order to get there, Hillary Clinton is going to have to overcome two very real obstacles, unknown and often ununderstood gender bias, and even worse, a degree from Yale. <laughs> you can challenge stereotypes, both subtle and obvious. At Facebook, we have posters around the wall to inspire us. Done is better than perfect. Fortune favors the bold. What would you do if you weren't afraid? My new favorite, nothing at Facebook is someone else's problem. 
I hope you feel that way about the problems you see in the world because they are not someone else's problem. Gender inequality harms men along with women. Racism hurts whites along with minorities. And the lack of equal opportunity keeps all of us from, from fulfilling our true potential. So as you graduate today, I want to put some pressure on you. I want to put some pressure on you to acknowledge the hard truths, not shy away from them, and when you see them, to address them. The first time I spoke out about what it was like to be a woman in the workforce was less than five years ago. That means that for 18 years, from where you sit to where I stand, my silence implied that everything was okay. You can do better than I did, and I mean that so sincerely. At the same time, I want to take some pressure off you. Sitting here today, you don't have to know what career you want or how to get the career you might want. Leaning in does not mean your path will be straight or smooth, and most people who make great contributions start way later than Mark Zuckerberg. Find a jungle gym you want to play on and start climbing. Not only will you figure out what you want to do eventually, but once you do, you will crush it. Looking at you all here today, I'm filled with hope. All of you were admitted to a small school near Boston, either for your academic potential, your personality, or both. You've had your firsts, whether it's a winter coat, a love, or a sea. You've learned more about who you are and who you want to be. And most importantly, you've experienced the power of community. You know that while you are extraordinary on your own, we are all stronger and can be louder together. I know that you will never forget Harvard. And Harvard will never forget you, especially during the next fundraising drive. <laughs> Tomorrow, you all become part of a lifelong community, which offers truly great opportunity and therefore comes with real obligation. You can make the world fairer for everyone. Expect honesty from yourself and each other. Demand and create truly equal opportunity. Not eventually, but now. And tomorrow, by the way, you get something Mark Zuckerberg does not have, a Harvard degree. Congratulations, everyone. Thank you so much, Cheryl. That was wonderful. Hello, everyone. My name is Alicia Johnson, and I have the pleasure of serving as the House Representative of Quincy House. Uh, my name is Sharon Carlson, and I am the House Representative for Elliott. <laughs> Together, we have the honor of introducing the class ode. Each year, members of the class have the opportunity to write two verses in the tune of Fair Harvard and compete for the chance to present their opus on class day. Well, there are more than 1,600 uh, different Class of 2014 experiences, the Class Ode strives to find our common strands and create a piece of work that we can all relate to. 
From late nights at Lamont to even later nights at the Quincy Grill, we have been through a lot during our time here, and the class ode creates an opportunity for us to celebrate our class and experiences through song, allowing the class of 2014 to live on, long outlasting our short time within these ivy walls. Two verses may not seem like a lot to express everything we have felt during our time here, like the refreshing and liberating feeling of the frigid Cambridge air, uh, caressing our skin during your first primal scream, and the pain in your knees after getting caught in your first pileup, <laughs> uh, the embarrassment you felt after walking into Lowell House and naively asking, where is the lecture hall? Or the moment you turned in your thesis, simultaneously turning down for what? <laughs> but this year's writers of the class ode have done a remarkable job at representing a piece of our college lives in 124 words. We would like to introduce the writers, hailing from the Harvard University Band. Thank you. Allison Freedy, Sebastian Gomez, Radhika Jain, Stephen Kent, James Looney, and Georgia Abrantes Shelton to present the 2014 class ode. Please rise now and join us in performing the class ode sung to the tune of Fair Harvard. Lyrics can be found printed in your program.
Thank you very much for writing our class, Zoe. I am thankful to the Harvard Glee Club because I actually know that tune. Hey! hey. <laughs> Good afternoon, class of 2014, faculty, administrators, family, and friends. My name is Christopher Cleveland. I am proud to serve as your 2014 second marshal. Despite the weather, um, today has truly been amazing. I want to thank each of our speakers today uh, for sharing their experiences. And as I look upon the yard, I can tell that Harvard has touched each of us in a unique way. The inspiration of convocation, the enormity of Harvard's 375th birthday, the solidarity after the Boston Marathon bombing, and the revelry of senior week have become the tears and laughter of remembrance as we reflect on what it has meant and means to be a part of the class of 2014. I've come to see the journey of a Harvard education as a transition from feeling welcome in this place to that of belonging in this place. And there's a key difference between the two. The realization of this difference came to me as I sat with my housemaster, Rakesh Karana, and other students at a recent breakfast. Rakesh looked at, looked at each of us and asked what sentiments the word belonging raised within each of us. We settled on the feeling of ownership. At Harvard, we are not guests. We are the owners of this place, the education, the name, and the power. Our journey at Harvard has challenged us to think not merely as visitors to this place, but as cultivators of a university that enables its students to be successful and encourages the success to touch the lives of people around the world. The transition has been exciting. Through our courses and extracurriculars, friends and mentors, we have been stretched to understand ourselves as Harvard students. And the transition has not always been easy. As our student speakers today have shown us, we can all understand those times during our education at Harvard when we felt crippled, when we're sure we've peaked, when we've experienced love, and when we're certain we have failed. And yet, despite the challenges of this transition, we can proudly claim today, on class day, that each and every member of 2014 belongs at Harvard, owns Harvard, and is Harvard. As we look toward the festivities of commencement tomorrow, we are encouraged to carry our sense of belonging to the class of 2014 and to Harvard College onward into the beginning and throughout our alumni lives. Harvard class of 2014, you have accomplished something magnificent by graduating from this college. And I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow as we are given our degrees and in the coming years as we use our degrees to do amazing things for this world. Thank you and congratulations 